you're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. What is it, when you think of comfort, what do you think of, right? What is it that comes to mind? Is it mashed potatoes and gravy and turkey uh, on Thanksgiving, right? Is it, is it a, a nice warm blanket on a cool fall um, day like we experienced a week ago, but not now? Watching a really fun show and just cuddling up, you know, those things. And so what is it, what is it that comes to mind? And I would say we as a people, we love comfort. We do. We love comfort. But I want to talk about, look, comfort isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a wrong thing. But sinful comfort. Sinful comfort has this the idea, in my own words, to kind of remove yourself away from or avoid anything that is uncomfortable, um, especially if God is calling us to be uncomfortable. And this is the sort of imagery we have here that we have Mordecai and we have Esther living in an empire that is extremely comfortable. They have a living. Esther is queen. She can have anything she wants. She can eat whatever she wants. Mordecai is an official. He's always in the king's gate. He essentially has the, the job choice, his career choice, right? His daughter is the queen. He can live in really luxury. He can retire nicely and tell everybody and tell all his grandchildren about how his daughter became queen. There's really a lot of comfort here. There's not a whole lot of risk. There's not nations really just coming around and threatening the Persian empire. Well, not yet anyways. So there's comfort here. And what happens is you have an adaptation to that comfort and you become content with it. And I think we kind of see that with Haman or excuse me, with Mordecai and with Esther is this contentment with that comfort. But here's the goal. The goal is not to, because I know what we will hear in our own minds, is that, okay, we got to stop being comfortable. Like, sitting under a warm blanket on a cool day is sinful. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, what the problem is, is that if comfort, comfort becomes the blinding mechanism to what God has called us to do. We get so wrapped up, if you will, in comfort that we don't see what God is up to or what He is telling us to do, or even telling us to let go of. But here's where suffering becomes beneficial. So suffering enters the picture in this story. And what we begin to see with suffering is that it removes comfort almost instantly. It removes comfort and it forces those who are comfortable here in the Persian Empire, especially Mordecai, and we will soon see Esther, to become uncomfortable and to adjust. Suffering, I would also say, gets us to a point of realizing that we are exiles. That's what it does. It forces us to see that we are exiles. This is not our home. Mordecai, this is not your home. Esther, this is not the end for you. For us as Americans, this is not the end getting a really good paying job and having two kids and a house and a mortgage and being able to go on five vacations a year isn't the end goal. Suffering 
helps us see that this, there is more in life than to what we have here. So I want us to come out of the shadows of comfort and into the light of costly obedience. Out of the shadows of comfort and into the light of costly obedience. And so we're going to kind of see that broken down. I, ha- I broke these two chapters down kind of into four sections. You can follow along as I talk about it. I'm not going to reread the chapters, of course. But here we'll see in the first three verses the costly obedience of Mordecai, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. All of Mordecai's convictions have now been fully exposed before the empire. Remember last week that Mordecai, for some reason, came face to face with Haman, the official, and there was something about that story. We're not told in great detail what it was, but Mordecai refused to bend the knee to Haman. But we are clued in because the scripture tells us that Mordecai, his great-great-great-grandfather, if you will, is King Saul. And Haman's great-great-great-grandfather is King Agag. And when we see genealogies written in scripture, they're written not for the purpose of just telling us, oh, here's where your bloodline comes from. Here's where your origin is. Here's what your ethnicity is. No, it's telling a story. The genealogy is telling a story. King Saul and King Agag were opposed to one another. There was enmity. So what we see here is in this story, Mordecai comes face to face with an enemy of God. And he has to kind of have this moral, he has this moral dilemma. Do I bend the knee to this enemy of God or do I refuse and be obedient to God himself? And of course, all of this without even mentioning God in the story. But now Mordecai's conviction and his obedience and loyalty to the Lord is not only going to cost him his own life, it is going to cost the lives of thousands upon thousands, maybe millions, obviously, of Jews within the Persian Empire. That is a weighty thing for Mordecai. And now he feels it in the most devastating of ways. And so there's going to be one day in about a year's time when all of the empire is going to go to war against the Jews and kill them. You talk about racism at its finest. And so Mordecai is in great distress. And so what does he do? He goes to the only place, the, to the only one he knows who can do something. And yet God is not even mentioned here, but he goes in prayer. He goes in mourning he goes in fasting, and you see that by the time you get to verse 3, it is, there is great mourning. That word great, gadol in Hebrew, the same word you see in the story of Jonah and the great fish. There's this large, humongous, great mourning, fasting, weeping, lamenting all over the Persian Empire. Wherever the decree has reached, the Jews in those areas didn't just go, ah, well, that stinks. No, they were wailing, completely mourning. And not only that, their friends who were not Jews were probably mourning with them. And so now what we begin to see is for the first time, perhaps, that this generation of Mordecai and Esther's generation are experiencing what their great-grandparents experienced when they came out of Jerusalem. Remember, we were in the book of Lamentations before this. Their grandparents were lamenting the fact that they were now 
taken captivity to the Babylonians because of their sin. And now the Jews in this time are recalling, oh my goodness, we are the exiles of this province. And so now they're lamenting. And remember, we define lamenting in a unique way according to what we see in Scripture. It is really grieving with hope. Everybody, whether you're a Christian or not, grieves when devastation happens, when people die, when close relatives all of a sudden disappear or they go off the map, right? We all grieve those things. But the question is, what is the aim and the point of our grief? And lamenting, as we see in Scripture, is pointed to a greater hope and reality. And so the Jews know and remember God's word and his promise. God, it's not supposed to end with the Persian Empire. And so there is a lamenting. I can't control this situation. This is devastating. I don't want to die. I don't want our people to die. God, do something. I know you will. So finally, they see themselves really as exiles. Has it dawned on you that in these times that you and I are exiles? We are exiles. I mean, how could you not see it? I mean, you would have to live in a hole in the ground with no access to humans, no access to phones, the internet, a television, to not realize what has been going on. I mean, look at everything that has happened with COVID, with the race issues, with politics, right? It's election year. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember this, for those of you who are Redeemerites, but somebody who was among us for about a year and a half or so died of heroin overdose in March. I don't know if you guys remember that. Somebody who was among us. And now we are continuing to see depression and drugs and anxiety peak up as we all have to sit in our homes and be quarantined and pushed away from one another on top of race issues, on top of political issues, on top of wondering if we're going to be able to have money to pay the bills. All these pressures are coming down upon us. Suffering is all over us. And if we think about our society, right? Because we all have experienced, especially in the church, there are so many divisions, there's so many camps of where people lie on the race issues, on the COVID issue, on the political spectrum. We have a variety of opinions, right? And some of us like to cling to those identities as, man, that, this is me, this is who I am. But let me ask you, what part of those identities or those of society are truly accepting in their fullest form of the gospel of Jesus? At some point, you bring the gospel to bear to the Republican Party, to the Democrat Party, to the Black Lives Matter Party, to the All Lives Matter Party, to the pro-mass, to the anti-mass, to whatever it is you want to bring it to. It is all going to fall short of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So are you then hanging in the shadows of comfort during this time? Eventually you'll be found out. And your allegiance, what is it to? Is it to the Lord or is it to these other things that make you comfortable? So I want to call you out of that. And just be aware, when you come out of the shadows, you will begin to experience what it means to be an exile. At first, it hits you, man, all my close friends are gone. All these people I thought were on my team, they're not around anymore. But that will, sl that will slowly be redeemed in the gospel of Jesus through his church. 
So I want to call you out, not to anything radical or crazy, right? In the, in the church world, pastors are notorious for this, using superlatives for everything, like awesome, exciting, engaging, right? Like we really try to get you pumped up. I can't do that. I cannot fake that. What I want to just call you to is nothing exciting, awesome, right? But to just being ordinary. Just be ordinarily obedient to what God has called you to be. That's all you need to be. And when we begin to do that and come out of the shadows, we begin to really lament with real hope. Real hope. And so we see this Mordecai calling Esther out of the shadows in chapter 4, verses 4 through 17. Esther, come out of the shadows. And so Mordecai goes into the place he's not supposed to go to, and he begins to lament. He goes in with sackcloth and, and ashes. And so what we see here in these verses in 4 through 17 is this interaction between Mordecai and Esther. And it's very progressive. It's not just a very black and white, hey, Mordecai wants to tell you something. Esther hears it and goes, okay, let's act. There's kind of a progression of really Esther coming out of the shadows of her own comfort. And so I see that in kind of four different ways. First is kind of this distanced interaction we see in verse 4. Mordecai comes in, he draws attention to the queen because the queen hasn't come out. The queen hasn't said anything. Mordecai knows his connection is to the queen, so he needs to get her attention now. So what does he do? He breaks the law, he goes in, he begins to lament in sackcloth and ashes, drawing attention to himself, drawing attention to the officials, ultimately drawing attention to the queen. And so you see in in that first interaction there, Esther's response. Esther's response isn't so much, I mean, she is distressed, right? It weighs heavy on her, kind of that her dad is out there lamenting. I mean, what daughter wouldn't feel that way for a father she loves, right? But her initial response is, hey, get some clothes on so that you're not breaking the law, so that you're not drawing attention. Why don't you just look decent in this moment? That was her initial response. It's not a sinful response, but that's the initial one. Mordecai understands what she's after, but he really needs her attention, so he rejects the clothes. He rejects the clothes with the purpose of drawing Esther into this conversation. And then you begin to see Esther become intrigued. So there's this kind of distance that Esther had in in this interaction, but now she's intrigued. She's being brought in. What you see in this interaction should, be, should kind of fascinate you. Esther has no idea that the decree was passed out and sent among the provinces of the Persian Empire. I mean, she's literally living in the same house with her husband and has no clue. No clue. And so when Mordecai rejects the clothes, Esther goes, okay, let me hear what's going on. And so she sins one of her right-hand men, Mordecai then has the opportunity to kind of spill out the details, and he does. Everything that Haman did um, in chapter 3, Haman is, or Mordecai is aware of to the detail. He knows what it was that happened to him. He knows about Haman offering money to the king to basically, I'll cover the bill of half the kingdom's taxes if you make sure that these Jews are killed. And then he has to hand a copy of the decree 
so that Esther will actually be able to read it and know what is going on. So he lets her assistant know. He takes it back to Esther and he wants Esther to know, Mordecai does, hey, I want you to plead with the king. Keep in mind, God hasn't shown up. There's no burning bush here. There's no writing on the wall. Mordecai is acting like maybe you and I would act. Look, hey, you got to do something about this. You're the only one I know who has power to influence the king, to influence this situation. And so then Esther receives that. She reads the decree. You see in verses 10 through 11. And now she becomes almost hesitant. There's this distanced interaction, this intriguing interaction, and now kind of this hesitancy, if you will. She has understanding. And you think at this point in the story, just the way that we generally talk about Esther, it's like, oh, she's going to jump to hero status right now. She's going to put this thing in fifth gear, full throttle. She's just going to go for it. But that's not what happens at all. Her first full response to Haman, after understanding all the details of what goes on, has zero to do with the actual problem of the king destroying the Jews, but it is about her predicament, her personal predicament as queen. She appeals to the fact that Mordecai, you're asking me, what you're asking me is to break the law and potentially die. You understand, I can't really help, it's just too risky. And the second problem is, Dad, that the king hasn't summoned me for the last 30 days. And I'm sure we all know that the king hasn't been alone the last 30 days, but he surely hasn't called his queen to be with him the last 30 days. And so now you want me to go in unannounced after not seeing my husband for 30 days and break the law and expect him to respond kindly and just offer the signet ring to me? And so she's very hesitant. And then we see Mordecai's response in verses 12 through 17. He's able to, he's able to see how the, this compliant leadership to the empire has now affected his daughter. For many years, Mordecai has been loyal to the king, loyal to the Persian empire, taught his daughter to be loyal to the empire. In fact, taught his daughter how to be not like Queen Vashti, who was uh, problematic to the king, but how to win the king over so that she could have that position and power. But now, Mordecai is faced with this dilemma again to be a good and godly father to his daughter and to really give her a hard crash course in the cost of her faith. Let me remind you of who you really are. That's kind of what it's getting at. And you see that in verse 13. Esther, listen, the palace is not going to save you. The palace, you can't be spared from this. Unless you completely deny in every way, shape, and form every ounce of Jewishness that is within you. In verse 14, your silence, Esther, is going to result in the death of your family. Your father, your mother, your siblings, your cousins. All of those who are God's people throughout the empire. And so in the midst of Mordecai explaining the cost of what's going on, you kind of see some anxiety kicking in. You begin to see it saying, look, if you don't help Esther, 
Help will come from somewhere else. Look, I'm not exactly sure where it's going to come from, but there's going to be help that comes. Are you going to do it or not? Right? You begin to see and feel that. He's saying, look, look, I'm not 100% sure about this, but maybe, Esther, maybe you are queen for such a time as this. Because remember, God didn't tell them this was his plan. Hey, this is my plan. This is how I want you to become queen, and this is how I'm going to save my people. He never does that. Mordecai is just being human, right? And Esther's response, while it is good, it's not some soul-gripping faith response. Esther will respond, and she will turn to God. But really, again, there's no mention of God's name here. No mention of her worshipful desire of Him. There, nor there is there any, again, any burning bush, any prophet saying, Thus saith the Lord. She just responds, verse 16, like a good faithful daughter, like a good faithful Jew. She says, let's get all the Jews together. Let's fast and let's pray in verse 16. And then after this prayer and fasting for three days, I will then approach the king. But then you see her final words in verse 16. And this is kind of that final interaction, that descriptive word. It's pitiful. It's kind of a pity. Look, I'll go to the king, but just a reminder, Dad, when I go, I'm breaking the law, just so you know. And look, there's no guarantee of this. There's no assurance of this. If I die, I guess I die. It's kind of a pitiful response, right? It's not gripping with faith and zeal for the Lord here. Esther has really fully assimilated to her Persian queen life. And she's grown distant from her covenant community for over five years. She couldn't even tell you who her church family is. She couldn't even tell you where her church family sat in the pews, right? Now we got pews, y'all. She couldn't even tell you what's going on in somebody's life. She couldn't even tell you what kids have been born, what kids haven't been born. She has been not connected to her people at all. So who among us, or better yet, not among us, has been swept into the comforts of this world and has grown farther and farther away from covenant community? Do you see from this story how blinding the comforts of the world can be, even as a Christian? It can completely blind us. If you find yourself in the comforts of this world, you run the temptation of seeing your identity and union going away from Christ and away from His people into being one with the world. Think of it like this. A covenant is like a marriage, right? That's what it is. It's a covenant relationship between all of us in this room. Like a husband to a wife. Imagine a, a father... You know, he's working all day and the wife stays home with the kids. And he's like, you know what? I, I deserve this. I'm just going to go out and I'm going to go have a good time with the boys. I'm going to go hang out. I'm going to go spend the money. I deserve this. You've been at home all day doing nothing, clearly. Why don't you make food for the kids and put the kids to bed? And I'm just going to go hang out and do my own thing. That's kind of the imagery of what it is when we just dismiss the covenant community. And we just write it off as though it's nothing. It means nothing. We can just casually just walk out of the room and go, you just take care of the kids, feed them dinner, give them a bath, put them to bed. I'll be back later when it's good for me. 
when we isolate ourselves from God's people, it becomes very difficult to understand then the pains, the struggles, the sorrows of the community. You know nothing. Like Esther, you're 100% oblivious to what is happening right under your nose. And it can often take multiple conversations for you to just get the point. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had people come to me and go, man, I didn't even realize that. Like, yes. I didn't know we were doing that. I didn't know X, Y, and Z. I was like, I said it like 12 times. And we've been praying about it as a church. Well, I didn't know because you haven't been around. So how has the world blinded you from seeing what God is up to among his people? Where's your confidence? We look at this story of Mordecai and Esther, and we begin to see kind of their confidence isn't very high. I mean, they're kind of going with it. They're kind of fumbling along, if you will, but it's not very high. Where would your confidence in God be if your life was at stake? If somebody, let's just say, you know, put a gun to your head and said, you know, deny Jesus or die, right? What would you do? We we get so blinded by our comfort. You understand this. Christians are still being persecuted today around the world for the gospel. They're being put to death. They would probably rather die by COVID than the way they are dying right now. But we're so blinded at times to our own selves, we forget what is even happening with God's people even around the world. What would it look like if Mordecai had responded like, say, Abraham? If you remember Abraham, he had some mess-ups, but then there was a time where he kind of, man, he got it together. And he had 100% assurance of what was going on. That famous story in Genesis 22, I believe it's Genesis 22 or 21-22, where he rises up to kill his son Isaac. God tells him to sacrifice his son Isaac on an altar. After God had told him, hey, by the way, I'm going to multiply your offspring more numerous than the stars in the sky. So then, why don't you take your one offspring and kill him? Like, it's just ludicrous. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19 reminds us and tells us that even Abraham knew that even though he would kill his own son, that God would raise him back up from the dead because God would fulfill his word. His promise. And so then, Abraham, with full confidence and assurance, raises the knife, and God stops him. And a poor ram is stuck in the thicket, and he has to take the blow. The confident, or the difference between Mordecai and Abraham is in this situation is trusting in God's word to its fullest, in, in being 100% assured of what God is going to do. Mordecai is living as an exile, so it's become easy for him to not be so grounded in the assurance of God's word, if you will, just take on the comforts of the world, so to speak. But Abraham was grounded in the Lord. Your confidence, my confidence, is to be grounded in God's word, right? The word that we just spoke, the word that we just read. So how you treat God's word will be the determining factor for the level of your confidence when you face really hard situations. And so Esther and Mordecai, they were both wrestling with their decisions. You could see the heaviness. You could see the sorrow. 
But even still, Esther still, or Mordecai did the right thing. Esther did the right thing. Going to prayer and fasting, they were just fumbling along, if you will. They weren't acting in perfection, but they were just fumbling along in obedience. We put a ton of pressure on ourselves to fix problems, to strategize, to have meetings, to come up with perfect plans of execution. And it's okay. Look, it's okay that we're not the perfect responders of faith like Abraham was with Isaac. But we can still respond in prayer and faith in a way saying, look, I I don't really have the answers. I don't really have any ideas. And honestly, I'm just struggling to know what God wants. That's okay to do. What we all need to be doing is praying and fasting. Prayer is really just seeking the Lord. Fasting is just hungering for the Lord. For the month of October, I want to encourage you guys, and some of you have, we have these prayer rooms set up. Come in the morning, 9.45. Don't interrupt temple service. But come in the morning for an hour or 30 minutes before service starts and begin to pray for the nations. We have rooms set up for the nations. Pray for the people who are facing hardship on a daily basis because of the gospel of Jesus. We have a book, a binder with all the members in it, their names and their kids. Pray for the members. Pray for the kids. And I'm going to tell you, look, the days ahead are not going to be easy. And we cannot approach it in our own wisdom, in our own strategies, in our own plans. We need the wisdom and the guidance of the Lord along the way. You and I are called to prayer and fasting, to seeking the Lord. You cannot just depend upon me and the elders and the leadership to be praying all the time. We, as disciples of Jesus, as sons and daughters of the living God, need to constantly make appeals to the Lord. Because there will be decisions in the days ahead where we have to decide, where is our loyalty? Is it to Jesus Is it to the government? Is it to a political party? Is it to a social movement? And the decision we make will cost something. And we do not want to make that decision without seeking the Lord. And look, y'all, y'all were already planning on being at service at 10 o'clock. You have been for the last eight years. So just show up at 10 o'clock, if that makes it easier, and pray. Lay yourself down. Maybe... For fasting, maybe don't make this law, but here's an example. Maybe you don't eat breakfast on Sunday morning. You fast Sunday morning as a first step and just come in and seek the Lord. Just pray and hunger for God's word in this time. Make it that simple. And so we begin to see Esther's then costly obedience in chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Esther's three days of fasting and prayer happens she has everybody all her ladies do it all mordecai and his guys do it and there's still look there's still no word from god i mean she laid herself down not eating right her king her husband likes her to eat likes his ladies a little plump right he likes them looking good and now he's not eating she's not eating she's not having her ladies eat so she's already pressing the boundaries of obedience to her husband And yet God is not showing up, right? He hasn't stopped the lions. He hasn't showed up in a flaming inferno. There's no writing on the wall. There's nothing. But Esther knows she faces possible death, punishment, like Queen Vashti. 
except maybe worse. And so she then, there's no real dramatic pause here in the scripture in verse 1 of chapter 5. There's no real dramatic pause, but I guess the dramatic pause are the three days of fasting and prayer. She goes and she quietly and carefully stands in the king's presence. She doesn't come in kicking the doors down like John claude Van Damme or anything, right? She comes in humbly and, and, and lowly, and she stands there, and she waits until the king turns to actually recognize her. And verse 2 is the miracle. And despite all odds, Esther wins the king's favor. She does it again. It's like we see in the New Testament that a wife to an unbelieving husband wins him over without even a word. This is what Esther is doing. Without even saying a word, she wins her husband over. It is no short of a miracle. This is an answer to prayer, if you will. So what a relief, right? And at this point, we might be kind of sighing and thinking, whew, here we go. Now, Esther, go kick some rear end and, and take names along the way. But there's a lot of work to be done, a ton of work ahead. She has to consider her words. She has to consider her timing. She has to keep in mind that the king has an irrevocable decree to kill the Jews. That doesn't just go away here soon. And so now she knows there is certain loss ahead. It's either the loss of her life, the loss of the Jews, or even the loss of the king's reputation, if you will. But there's certain loss ahead, but she has to go through. And then you begin to see by verse 3, her wisdom really on display. This last week, Austin Reedy and I took some time to just have a day with the Lord. We had like 5,000 things to do. We just went away and didn't do any of them and just spent time with the Lord. And I was in the book of Job, just wanting to punish myself. And so I was reading in the book of Job, and Job reminded me of this. His friends, of course, are not giving him good advice. But Job talks about wisdom and understanding. And he talks about it this way. He says, look, people go all over the world, and they dig the mountains up looking for gold, looking for silver, looking for precious jewels. He says, where can you find wisdom and understanding? You can't find it in the earth. You can't dig it up anywhere. It's only found in the Lord. And when you find it, it is more valuable than any gold, than any silver, than anything at all. And so we begin to see that Esther really kind of operates with that sort of wisdom, a wisdom and understanding that is not found anywhere except only in the Lord. And so we begin to see her patience then. Her patience. This is going to be difficult for us to really think through, but we need to think through this because it's hard for us to really associate. Excuse me. She spent three days praying and fasting. The Lord has not appeared. She doesn't have a Bible in hand. She doesn't, no one knows she's a Jew. She would definitely not have a Torah, right? She would not have a Bible. But her prayer and fasting led her to consider her position, her God, her people, and how she would approach the issues. Because here's the obstacles that Esther is facing now that she is before the king. She's essentially going to be asking the king to reverse an irreversible law. That law, if the king were to decide to do that for the sake of the Jews, 
it could cost him half the kingdom, his reputation, his reputation in the empire. A lot was at stake. It wasn't just about him. It was the entirety of the empire and the reputation. It also... Uh, this this costliness that Esther has is that she has to reveal her Jewishness. She has been hiding it and concealing it for over five years, and now she has to tell her husband that she is a Jew. So to re- receive favor immediately, it would be a miracle. She's just in the moment trying to discern what she has to do. She knows moving forward, however, that she needs both the king and Haman, and she also needs their favor. She needs both the king and Haman, and she needs their favor. And so you begin to see her play in verses 3 through the beginning of verse 5. She does not open with the issue immediately when the king extends his golden scepter and she receives his blessing to be in his his presence. She doesn't just drop right away with the information. She kind of holds it back because to do so would have been extremely risky. She didn't have those two factors yet, Haman and favor. So Esther needed to show herself as meek and lowly, continuing to play to the king's ego and pride, right? King, I need you to remember, he doesn't know this, I need you to remember that you're in power, you're in control, you are to be honored, you are the king. And so she invites Haman into these quarters and the king does that. And the king then says, what is it? And she says, you know, I prepared a feast In her mind, now that I have the king and Haman, I prepared a feast. Will you come this evening to the feast and we will talk then? The king says, okay. Verses 5 through 8. They come, the king loves parties, the king loves food, the king loves wine, he loves hanging out, right? That's his thing. He's like a glorified frat kid. And so he's hanging out, he's enjoying himself, and so he finally gets to the point where he's like, all right, Esther, what is it? Up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. And you would think at this point in the story, man, Esther, get it. While the iron is hot, strike. But she doesn't. She's like a good fisherman, right? She casts out and she gets a large catch and she sets the hook. But she understands that she has to brace herself for a, a lengthy fight for the fish to get to the boat. You can't just reel that in like a perch, if you will. Just fling it onto the boat. You have to work at it. And so she has essentially started to set the hook on the king, though the king has no idea. And so Esther then plays to her advantage with the king, and she begins to then ask the second thing. If I have found favor, right? I've got the king, I've got Haman. If I have found favor, will you let me tell you tomorrow at the feast? Right? She's constantly towing that line, seeing how far she can go, not in an evil kind of way, but in a wise kind of way. And the king knows that, the, that his queen, after over five years, isn't going to waste his time, risk her life coming into his palace to just waste his time. She know, he knows she has something, and she knows that she cannot delay anymore at the next meal. So the king grants it, and Haman leaves super pumped. Super excited. I look at the patience of Esther here, and I think, man, we are an anxious people. We are really anxious people. We, we cannot imagine waiting to tell the king if we were presented the opportunity. I know if I was in those quarters and he extended the scepter towards me, I'd be like, okay, i got to tell you something right now. 
But that's what would happen in operating out of anxiety. Anxiety comes from a lack of trust in God, a lack of prayer, a lack of seeking God's word. In all of Esther's shortcomings that we see in the book here, this isn't one of them. She did this right. So how has your lack of patience or your anxiety led you down a road of really devastation, heartache, broken relationships? We joke in the office, I'm the kind of person that it's like fire, ready, aim. <laughs> I'm always like, let's just go for it. Sink or swim, baby. Let's just, let's just dive in and see what happens. But that has cost me quite a bit over the years. Think about the times you maybe were patient and you sought the Lord's wisdom and how it resulted in this slower, harder play, but it ultimately proved to be life-giving in the end. Right? We think for us to have a good outcome, we got to act now, but often it's we don't need to just act now impulsively, anxiously. Slowing down shows that we trust in God, not our just own personal instincts. So where are you this morning? Where do you need to slow down in life? In what way do you need to stop yourself from trying to overcorrect or quickly resolve an issue? So I've been thinking about barbecue a lot lately, as well as eating it. I happened to eat it last night. It wasn't a plan, but I did, and it was delicious. I don't know how to do barbecue right. I know how to eat it, and I know what is good barbecue. But I know there's a lot of variables that go into place in making good barbecue, right? It's like the heat, the type of meat, the amount of fat, right? How long you do it, all of these things. You guys get it, right? One of my favorite barbecue items are ribs along with pulled pork. That's neither here nor there. But to do ribs right, so I've seen and heard and have eaten, they need to be properly seasoned. They need to be given enough time to slowly cook. I mean, you can cook them fast. We actually cooked ribs kind of fast the other day, and they were good, but I mean, they weren't really good. But you need to slowly cook them so they don't dry out, so they can absorb the smoke and the flavors of the seasoning, right? We need to make sure that when we act and when we make decisions, we do so after we've been seasoned by grace and we have absorbed God's word and promises into our hearts, right? When we, when we take the time to wait on the Lord, we learn to patiently and with much wisdom respond to hard decisions. Not every decision is going to take three or four or five days. Some decisions have to be made now. But the question is, are you soaking in God's word? And what do you need to do in life in order to slow down and be seasoned by and absorb God's word? What decisions do you need to make that are necessary, that are big, that are important, but do not have to be made right now? Look, this is a lesson we can learn in our marriages and our relationships. Relationships aren't something that you just microwave and fix. They last, right? They take days, weeks, months, years to heal and to grow and to mature and to be nourished. So remember, your decision to obey comes at a cost. And do you want to rashly and impulsively and anxiously make decisions and bear that cost? Or do you want to be careful and seek the Lord and His wisdom and His understanding, make then those decisions counting that cost? And so we see finally in the last verses 9 through 14 of chapter 5, really the shadows of Haman's comfort come in direct conflict 
with the light of Mordecai's obedience. So Haman went out joyful and in gladness of heart. You see that in verse 9. That's such an interesting verse for me. We'll come back to that later. But as soon as he saw Mordecai, oh man, Haman was living the life. He was doing well. He was hanging with the king and the queen. And then all of a sudden he walks by Mordecai and sees Mordecai doesn't drop to his knee, doesn't tremble. There's no reverence for him. And all of a sudden his fragile little ego was broken. I mean, like that, it was broken. Haman's idol is his ego. And it's extremely fragile. And so the shadow of Haman's comfort was quickly turned really into darkened wrath. He went from joy and gladness to wrath in a matter of seconds. I mean, that quickly. And instead of dealing with it in the moment, he decided to tuck it away, right? Hold the tears back and go on. And so then you begin to see his ego, really, in 10 through 15. He calls his people. He calls his crew. He calls his family, his friends around him to bolster his ego, to bolster his pride. And then as he calls his people around him, you begin to see the ego flare up in verses 11 and 12. He recalls his, all his prestige, right? Here's all my accolades. And I can imagine his kids maybe and his wife just kind of eye rolling. Here we go again, hearing all these things. We're all familiar with them. We've heard them a thousand times. Yes, we understand you got to do all these things and you're hanging out with the king and the queen. And then in his story of all the things that he has going for him, Mordecai seems to be the biggest threat in verse 13. I mean, really? What does he have to gain or lose because of Mordecai? Mordecai hasn't done anything. It's the ego of Haman that's the problem. And so being around bad company then means you'll have bad advice in verse 14. So Haman's wife speaks up. She sympathizes with Haman's ego. Haman knew what he was doing. He was essentially manipulating his family and friends to hear his woes in life, knowing that they would offer comfort to him. So it's kind of like, you poor, poor man. Look, Mordecai needs to be done away with. Go and make the gallows. Make them so tall that everybody can see. And in the morning, before you go hang out with Esther and the king, go tell the king about Mordecai and have him hanged on the gallows. And then once the king does that for you, then you can just let that weight fall off and you can go to the feast all joyful. Haman got the answer he was looking for, exactly what he needed, and he went and made the gallows. Coming out of the shadows also requires a mortifying of sin, a mortifying of idols. Haman is a case study for idolatry and its effects. That's what we see. Idolatry is designed to make the idol maker a self-made God and ultimately a glory thief of the one and only God and creator. Idols produce manufactured joy and gladness and manufactured joy is a fragile joy. Any failure to comply with anyone's idols can quickly turn evil. Idolaters are always looking for company who will sympathize with their ego. And failure to turn to the Lord instead of the idol will ultimately 
result in catastrophic loss. There is a fly on my face. So here we have Haman rejoiced in the potential death of Mordecai. He rejoiced in it. He rejoiced that the decree went out. He rejoiced that he is going to die. But ultimately, Haman is blinded by his idol. This reminds me, when Jesus was going to the cross, when he was going to die, there was a lot of rejoicing going on. And it wasn't from all the people around him, all his disciples. They weren't rejoicing over this fact. But the evil one was rejoicing. All those who were against Jesus were rejoicing because he was going to the cross. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 2, 8 and 9. He says, we impart and seek a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And it is this. Had the rulers known about God's decree and plan before the ages that Jesus would die on the cross and resurrect from the grave, it says in that chapter that the rulers would not have put Jesus to death. Haman thinks he will out-decree God and out-decree his plan and out-decree the gospel. Satan, sin, and death think they got Jesus. They've got God where They want him, but they don't understand the hidden decree from the ages that Jesus would rise from the dead and completely defeat them. Haman thinks he's on top. Are you bowing to an idol? Does your anger, your pride, your ego all flare up when someone does not comply with your way of thinking and your life choices? When your church family calls you to repentance over sin... Do you dig your heels in and become defensive? Or maybe like Mordecai and Esther, you hear it. It's a little bit of a struggle for you, but you come through, right? Or are you like Haman? You go, no way. I'm holding out on this one. I've got my own decree here. And if you're bowing to an idol, can you not see that the joy in your life is really a manufactured joy and it's not a blessing? We like to use that word all the time. Like if something good is going on, it is always a blessing. And then we use that blessing to justify our sin. Look, Haman had blessings. He had a wife. He had kids. He had a home. He had a great job. He had all those things. Is that a blessing in life? Well, sure, maybe in some degree. But was he blessed by God? Absolutely not. He was an enemy of God. He was bowing down to his own idol. He was living by his own decrees, not by the decrees of God. And so some of you are living enslaved to your idol, to your own decrees. And you're calling it a blessing from the Lord. You're lying to yourselves and we all see it. Maybe if you or someone you know in the church has an idol in their lives, I want you to remind them of what happened to Haman. It does not end well for him or anybody who's against God. And then I want you to be prepared For what will happen when you confront somebody who's bowing down to an idol, you can expect a Haman-like response. Evil, wrathful response. How dare you mess with my idol? You can expect them to go away from you and to run not to the church, but to other people who will pander to their liking, to their wants, to their selfish desires. And I want to remind you of this because we can get really strong when we're dealing with idols. And yes, right? Even Moses 
crushed the idol, smashed it down to ashes, and made the people drink, right? And that can be our quick response. But I want us to remember that when we are dealing with someone who's bowing down to an idol, that we are not going to war against the person. We are going to war for them. They need to lay down their idols and run to Jesus. And remember, we all are idolaters without Christ. We love ourselves. We love our own ways. We love our own kingdom. We love our own idols that we carve by our own hands. But Jesus has come and stripped them down and given us himself. If we're all honest, Haman could have repented. He could have repented and turned to the Lord in this story and been forgiven. We see that in the Old Testament where foreigners are brought in among the people. We see that in the New Testament when God includes the Gentiles. That's all of us in this room, unless there's any Jews that I don't know about. But God is calling all people, all kinds of people, unto Himself. And this is what idolatry does to us. It makes us really, really comfortable and content with ourselves. So do not be duped to believe in the powerless decree of man over the glorious and splendid decree of Christ. So we love comfort, right? Don't be blinded by comfort. We often adapt to comfort and we remain content. But I will say only remain content in the Lord. Welcome and invite suffering in. It's easy to say from the pulpit, I know. Welcome and invite suffering in because remember, suffering removes comfort and forces us to adjust. And suffering reminds us that we are exiles. Let me wrap up with this verse, these verses from 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So today is the day you come out of the shadows and live in the freedom of his marvelous light from out of the shadows of comfort to the light of costly obedience.